welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and the Classicist is Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Ilya Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, a lot going on since we last talked, and I want to just do a round robin today on, on some of the things you've been writing about lately, starting with this one. You wrote recently about a theme that you voiced occasionally during the Trump years, and one that is now, if anything, more salient, as it looks like we're probably heading towards the final days of this presidency. And this is the idea of Trump as tragic hero, that is, as someone who is both uniquely suited for his time in some sense, and yet not quite appreciated as such. So explain that thesis for us. Well, it's something that really is the it first appears as difference from an epic hero in Sophoclean tragedy. And then it, it pops up in literature, but it was the West was a particularly fertile field for its expression. And it's the point is that certain people have certain skills and they're outsiders and they don't play by the rules of polite civilization. But they are necessary in extremists to come in and solve a problem. If you want to, if you want to beat the Trojans, and Achilles is dead, you need Ajax, and Ajax deserves the armor of Achilles, but not according to the insider Odysseus, the sort of bureaucrat that rigs the decision, and then Ajax can't figure out what's wrong. And so what I'm getting at is that in the Western High Noon Magnificent Seven. Uh, Shane, we have the searchers, especially John Wayne. We have this archetype where somebody from the outside is crass, crude, has certain violent elements to his character, and yet he understands the enemy that's threatening polite society. And he takes it upon himself to save that society. He's a better man than his enemies, but he's considered not a better man than his uh, the people who will benefit from him. And when he starts to be successful, they start to, that famous line in Shane where somebody says, I don't like, I don't take a truck to gun slinging. And you want to say to him, well, then you put on a six-shooter and deal with those cattle barons. Or, you know, and Ethan Edwards, you know, said, what are you doing? Don't do that. Don't shoot his eyes out or whatever. Well, he, he understands the type of world that they're up against. And so Trump was that way. He came in from the Manhattan Wheeler Dealer world. He said, you know what? I don't know anything to the Council on Foreign Relations. I don't know owe anything to the Brookings Institution. I don't know owe anything to the panoply of retired bureaucrats. I don't care what John Kerry says. I'm just going to go do the following. We're going to cut a deal, you know, with. China, and it's going to be the deal we're going to cut is we're going to tariff you, we're going to get symmetrical trade from you, and you're not going to take over the world. And if you don't like it, that's it. We're going to cut a deal with the Europeans. You've been freeloading. An 18-year-old kid from Ohio is not going to go over anymore and be stationed in Germany when you won't even pay your 2% promised contribution to NATO, and then you cut a deal for $10 billion with Putin. So that type of thing was accompanied by rhetoric of the type I just mentioned. You know, what's the use of NATO and China's cheating and the China virus? And everybody was just appalled by this. But when we actually look at the record, the Middle East is completely reinvented. So is China. So is Europe. They couldn't do anything about it. So now it's time for him to go. And he's riding off into the sunset. We'll see if he's a sequel. But don't expect 
him to get a Nobel Prize for completely redefining the Middle East for the first time in 75 years, expect instead Barack Obama for getting one for doing nothing. And nothing in the words of, the, of some of the Nobel Prize adjudicators themselves. This entire argument about tragic heroes, Victor, brings to mind one of your books, The, the Savior Generals, which, which I commend to our listeners if they haven't yet read it. So can, with that in mind, can we talk a little bit more about the historical uh, antecedents or examples of this, this idea of the crusading outsider, whether it's in military leadership or political leadership? It is remarkable in many of these cases that these men make it into these positions. I mean, surely this was part of the shock with Trump. It was just inconceivable to a lot of people that he could end up being the president of the United States. So what is it that catalyzes the emergence of these kinds of figures? Can can this happen anywhere at any time, or are there certain cultural preconditions that are necessary to usher figures like this onto the stage? That's a very good point. When society is calm, there's no need for these people, and mediocrity reigns. But when it's challenged, either by a foreign or domestic or a natural threat, then it requires excellence. And in that distillation of talent, certain people have talent, and they have been scorned or neglected in the past because they didn't have accompanying social skills or particular cultural attitudes or pedigree or whatever it is. So they are brought in and reluctantly so, and given enormous latitude, and they bring results. And they always end up badly. And in the book, The Savior General, Themistocles was a half-Thracian. He was a renegade. And yet, when it came to trick, who would ever think you could trick the Athenians into building a fleet, or you could trick them into fighting at Salamis by faking a Delphic response in the wooden walls. And yet he does, and yet he's exiled very soon and ends up poor, disgrace, and a traitor. Or, you know, if you look at Belisarus, this young guy who comes in as the sidekick of Justinian, but he's an outsider. He speaks Latin rather than Greek. And he has a career of 20 years, and then he falls on the wrong side of intrigue. He's a straight shooter. He travels the entire old Western Empire. He gets everything back, almost, that was lost in the 5th century. And then he ends up the plague hits uh, Constantinople, Byzantium, and bad things happen. The Justinian dream crumbles, and he's turned on by his own emperor, and he ends up supposedly by, in a beggar in the street. Sherman, we all know Sherman. He couldn't wear nice clothes. He swore. He wore the, the, the uniform of a private. He was an absolute military genius, probably bipolar. And he scared his superiors with the exception of the only reason he, he, he had a career was because of his, his superior grant was similar to him. And then one of my favorites was Matthew Ridgway. I mean, he was, he'd had a heart attack. He was considered too old after World War II. He'd never been to Asia. He was a Spanish, uh, Latin American specialist. And God forbid he'd been married three times, always to a younger woman. And then suddenly, the icon of America, Douglas MacArthur, is surprised at the Yalu, longest retreat in U.S. military history, 10,000 soldiers killed in a month, and looks like Korea's lost. Everybody's saying, pull out, and they send Matthew Ridgway in right before Christmas. And he says, nope, we're going to probably lose Seoul. Media says, Ridgway gives up, we're going to lose Seoul. And he said, that's not what I said. I said, we're going to withdraw, withdraw, and then we're going to have a final line. And then when they overextend their, their lines, we're going to do to them what they did to us up in 
and he's fabulously successful. MacArthur undercuts him. The Joint Chiefs undercut him. And he never, never got the uh, the respect and acknowledgments and laurels that he deserved, partly because of his, you know, he called him old iron tits. He wore a grenade right on his chest, a live grenade, just like George Patton's ivory pistols and Curtis LeMay's cigar. I mean, they were, they deliberately tried to offend the sensibilities of their superiors and the culture in which they operated in. But they were absolutely military geniuses. So we all, and that's what Trump said. Remember he said the other day, he said, always go with the outsider. And so there's no reason to to say that, you know, Donald Trump was a failure or he endangered America. But if you do it empirically and say, who said more racially insensitive things, Biden or Trump? It's no, it's a no-brainer. Who did more for the inner city, Biden or Trump in his career? Trump did. If you look at all the statistics, he did. If you say, is the Middle East better for the U.S. now or not? Or have we come to reality with China or have we not? And the things that he's considered to be a failure in the COVID response, just prune away all of the bombast and ask yourself, have we ever had an, uh, a vaccine in the history of virology within nine months? Would, what precisely would Joe Biden have done differently? It's hard to know, because I can't figure out where he differs with Trump other than he keeps saying, wear a mask. But of course, Trump was told by Fauci, wear a mask, don't wear a mask, wear a mask, don't wear a mask. The, the WHO, got to have masks, don't have masks, masks are killing people if you go into a lockdown, that kind of stuff. So. I, he fits that bill is what I'm trying to say. One more note here on this theme of Trump as outsider, and that's from a piece you just had at American Greatness where you open with this sentence. These past four years, Donald Trump, intentionally or not, became a CT scanner. Explain what you mean by that. Well, of all of the underappreciated, and one of your colleagues wrote something similar. I had written about it twice before, and I talked about it in the book. And what I, I was trying to say is that we always had these suspicions about the thin veneer over these establishment fixtures. But Trump uh, so excited them, and they were so angry that he didn't have any—he was sort of their Raji Dangerfield, you know, uh, character that they thought had no business on the golf course. And so— they reacted in a way that really revealed themselves, and he became a scanner that gave us an interior picture beneath their thin veneers. So Tom Friedman, the beloved columnist, the voice of progressive America, says, we've got to move to Georgia, and we've got to win this and stop Trumpism, and, nah, 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 and then basically calls for people to commit a felony. Or uh, by the same token, he's destroyed the careers of John Brennan, James Comey. Uh, name them all, uh, Robert Mueller, all of them said they were going to take on Trump. He fought back, and then they revealed themselves to be dishonest, unethical, acting feloniously, or in some manner, you know, wanting. And I think anybody who understands John Brennan now realizes that he's a pathological liar, and he's, he's lied twice to a, uh, under oath to a Senate committee. But my, my point is they get so hysterical about Donald Trump that they have to appeal to their past authority or they have to reach out for groupthink approval, but they can't debate him on their on the merits of whatever it is, and they don't. And therefore, they always try to denigrate him, and he denigrates them back. 
and they they can't be denigrated because they have beat a club. I mean, they're saints, and he's not. So if you call him, call him what you want, but he's he never said he was a saint. They did, and so he's kind of he's kind of destroyed all of these institutions. The media. Does anybody really believe Jim Acosta is a, a White House correspondent anymore? Uh, gosh, look at CNN. He's he's made it he's made it into a caricature of a of a of a network. It doesn't even have any respect anymore. Look what he did to the Never Trump people. They they are they have been reduced to absolute insanity, and now they're out trying to think about it. Destroy lawyers who want to have a legitimate role into questioning a legitimate problem about voting, and they're going to sign up for the to support a Biden agenda apparently that they've spent their entire lives opposing just because of their hysterias over the the Trump factor. Let's turn for a moment to the future, because as you and I talk today, we are less than two months away from what I think is an unprecedented scenario, because at present, you've got 98 Senate seats decided, Republicans with a 50 to 48 majority in the Senate, and it all comes down to these two Senate seats in Georgia, both of which have been sent to January runoffs, because that's what Georgia law stipulates in cases where no candidate gets more than 50 percent of the vote in November. Normally, a state would not have both of its Senate seats up in the same year, but one of these seats is up for a special election. And were Democrats to win both, the 50-50 tie with the Democratic administration, because the vice president gets to cast the tiebreaker, would mean Democratic control of both houses of Congress, but slimmest of margin. So, Victor, what's at stake here, and what do you expect that we're going to see over the next couple of months in Georgia? Well, we're going to see a replay of— the presidential election. So we're going to have early voting and mail-in voting, and we're not going to be able to certify the accuracy or authenticity of the vote. And just as we have these troves troves of votes that mysteriously appear now, we've had three of them, 2,400, 2,500, they always seem to go against Trump. We'll finally, we'll have those as well. We'll see polls tell us that, you know, it's really not a red state anymore, and Loeffler and Purdue are really way down. They may be, but I doubt it. And we're going to have a media go in and try to tell us that Warnick is not a raging anti-Semitic, identity politics, racialist nut, and that uh, Ossoff isn't a far leftist masquerading as a centrist in Georgia that's never won an election. We're going to hear that they're both sober and judicious. They're part of the new Democratic Party. Just like we did in 2018 when we ran moderates, supposedly, who turned around and impeached the president within a very short time of being put into office. And uh, they're going to get—we're going to see searches blocked. We're going to see deplatformings. We're going to see also—Silicon Valley will do its part. Michael Bloomberg will probably try to vie with some other plutocrat to say, I I won Georgia for the Democrats who probably spent $50 or more. Stacey Abrams, we know what she's going to do. She's going to say fraud, 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 fraud. And so it's all set up. And Donald Trump's going to have to come in as the Calvary, and he's going to have to rile up the base and say, I fought. I didn't give in. Even if he loses, he's going to have to say, I didn't get in, and yet I didn't give in to conspiracy theories. He's going to have to navigate those two extremes. He can't just roll over and die and leave the deplorables out without a fighter. But on the other hand, as I said earlier, he can't go off into a conspiracy theory if there's no evidence for these very, very grandiose schemes that he won by several million, voiced by Linwood and Sidney Powell. So it's going to be a very exciting time. And the stakes, as you say, 
they're not just the Senate um, seat. They're not just control of the Senate. This time, it's a non-democratic party. It's a progressive left-wing party that would be the beneficiary of the vote. And when they get rid of the Senate filibuster, they're going to get rid of the whole idea of electoral college and nine-person court. And they can do it very quickly by circumventing the amendment process. They might even be able to find a way, hook by crook, to get in two more states. I think the second and first amendment will be radically pruned and a 15-person Supreme Court would probably uphold anything they, they say. So it, it's, it's really a make-or-break time. We're talking, Troy, about a red state that we're told is now blue because it, it, the greater Atlanta area is 6 million people, suburbs, and Georgia's got 6 million other people. And so it really is a red-blue state within a state. The final question that I'll ask you, and this is going to sound, particularly in light of what you just said, a little like I'm hanging a pinata and handing you a bat, but I, I'm asking, I ask this in earnest. The rhetoric from Joe Biden, both on the campaign trail and since the end of this election, has relentlessly emphasized unity, this idea that he wants to lower the country's temperature or cool some of the partisan animus. Is there any scenario, given the dynamics within the Democratic Party, given the dynamics within the Republican Party, given the dynamics within the country, by which you could imagine that actually taking place? And if not, what's our realistic spectrum of best case to worst case outcome? <laughs> Reminds me of Clementia Caesaris, the, the model of Caesar after he you know, butchered all of his enemies. We have to have clemency. <laughs> or Alexander the Great after he killed more Greeks than Greeks had ever killed Greeks. And he said we, he was going to usher in a new era of the brotherhood of mankind. And so Biden, after calling Trump a Nazi and saying, shut up, man, in the debate and unleashing basically by either hook or crook or neglect Antifa and BLM to terrorize our cities all summer long. And then to have AOC and all of these people basically call their conservative counterparts fascists and to deplatform people. We're all going to unite as um, and then we had Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, saying half the country voted for racism and hatred. Now we're all supposed to say, please forgive us, Michelle, 73 million people. I don't think so. I think uh, when they went after Brett Kavanaugh the way they did, when they tried to destroy the reputation of um, Justice, now Justice Barrett, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, I just don't think people are going to say, you know what, we've got to have bipartisan uh, give and take, and we got to look at Joe, good old Joe Biden from Scranton and look at his judicial appointments, and let's just examine them very carefully, and we're going to just vote entirely on the merits, just like they did on all of our. And Chuck Schumer is a great guy. We've worked with him for years, and we can work out something on climate change. I just don't think that's going to happen. I think, you know, if, if they had a transition like they gave Trump, then what would it be like, Troy? It would be right now Trump as if even if, if he's exiting all that, he would have a meeting in the Oval Office with everybody how to take the Logan Act and distort it in a way to start surveilling Trump's future, I mean, Biden's appointees. And then the FBI would get in the action. And then we'd have FISA court warrants. And then we would have deep state people planted by Trump everywhere from DOD to DOJ. And the next thing we'd know, President Biden's private phone calls with a Mexican president or the Australian prime minister are going to be on the front pages of what? Uh, Breitbart News? 
And that would go on until we finally said, we know what, we need a special prosecutor for the Biden family. And unlike the Trump-Russian Russian collusion, there would be something there. And so he would have a special prosecutor, and that would dog Biden for the first two years, $40 million, 22 months of his uh, administration. And then if we didn't want to do that, we would say he violated the emoluments clause because uh, the Biden family is making money while he's in office. And if that didn't work, we'd say, you know what? He's non compos mentes. Let's get that Montreal cognitive assessment test back out of the spider webs and bring it back out. And Trump aced it. Let's see how you do. And let's get Bandy Yee, is that her name? The Yale psychologist who testified that Trump should be put in a basically a straitjacket and escorted into the nut, nutty. I can use that word. But yeah, they're not. I mean, that's what they did. And so now it's all kumbaya. They always do that. They destroy whoever their opposition is. And then they say it's time to be patriotic and unite. And after a lifetime of watching that, I just don't think I'm in the mood. I don't think most people are in the mood to take them very seriously. And so the only time that they are serious is when after a 1972 loss or an unexpected setback in the House, then they start to have a little introspection and self-reflection. And they say, you know what? McGovern destroyed us, and we've got to go Bill Clinton next time. Or if, they, if they're smart, they're saying, 2018, we, we fooled everybody and got all these pseudo-Chamber of Commerce-type uh, centrists the veneers at least, and this time we didn't do it, and we lost a lot of seats, and we've got to go back to the old democratic way, but I don't see that happening until they're really beaten. We'll see. You've been listening to The Classicist Podcast with Victor Davis Hanson. Remember, you can read all of Victor's work at victorhanson.com, and he's on Twitter at VD Hanson. And if you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For Victor Davis Hanson, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.